0: In our previous episode, we talked about a set of TV commercials that use behavioral research to sell financial products like life insurance. It's
1: great to think optimistically, but let's plan for whatever the future might bring.
0: And this got us to thinking about how you might sell a different kind of insurance, one that doesn't even exist yet, and what kind of ad you'd make for it.
1: Okay, here's what I would show.
0: That's Steve Levitt. He's my Freakonomics friend and co-author.
1: I would show a sick old person, but not the way sick old people are usually shown as being you know, reasonably happy and fit, but what really people who are dying look like. Deformed, can't breathe, um, suffering deeply. And uh, and then at the bedside would be uh, a bunch of children in tattered clothing, um, looking kind of hungry. And um, seeming as if they, they could really use um, a college education or something and and then the voice of God coming over would would somehow make the point that another two weeks of, of dist- you know pain so bad it distorts your face lying in bed in a coma uh, isn't worth the cost of your kids or your grandkids, I should say not being able to go to college. So this TV ad might sound something like this. Mm-hmm.
2: We all want to take care of mom, but the doctor says her treatments might cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, and even so, she'll never fully recover. And we've got two kids to put through college.
1: Millions of families
3: are struggling with these same decisions. Now, a new healthcare plan puts you in control. You can decide if medical treatments are right for you or your loved one. And if you decide to forego the standard treatment, we'll put the money
4: directly in your pocket to use for whatever you need. College tuition, a new house,
3: or to take mom on one last adventure to soak up some glorious sunsets.
2: Thanks to glorious sunset healthcare option, mom won't have to suffer. And we can make decisions that make sense for our family.
1: Isn't it time for you to think about a glorious sunset? Enroll today.
0: So what do you think? Is it time for you, for all of us, to think about A Glorious Sunset? On this episode, we will put this idea through its paces and solicit a variety of opinions from economists. I love that idea. To
4: physicians. It would be a public relations nightmare. To physicians who are also public intellectuals. It's so cold-blooded. It's so calculating. It's so utilitarian uh, that it's not American.
0: And we hear from you, our listeners. My name's
3: Seymour. I'm 40 years old. First I'd like to know who's the heartless person who thought of this. And second of all, I think it's pretty genius
2: actually.
5: From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner.
0: The proposal under consideration today comes from a listener. Send us an email.
3: I'm Tim Price. I'm the chief investment officer for a mid-sized public pension fund. Okay, you want to name the public pension fund for us? I've been asked not to. <laughs> ah, this okay. this is a personal idea and not a, uh, not a organizational idea. Fair enough. In other words, that's a
0: good hint that the idea we're about to discuss is so repugnant that your firm is smart enough to not want, not want to be anywhere near it. Well, I, I shouldn't say repugnant, but it's um, potentially it's, it, unpalatable. It's <laughs> potentially unpalatable. That's a, a good way of putting it. Price lives in the Bay Area. He's in his late 30s. He's got a wife, two kids. Kids are six and two. Okay, and what are their names? I'm just curious. Sure, uh, Calvin and Elliot. Like I said, we first heard from Tim Price via email. I asked him now to read the
3: email aloud. Why don't health insurance companies offer bonuses to patients who are willing to forego standard end-of-life medical care? When a patient receives a terminal diagnosis, I have to believe that the healthcare companies have actuaries and data sets that would give them guidance on what the next six to 24 months of medical care would cost. For patients willing to skip this type of care, my idea is for a bonus according to the following formula. An immediate bonus of approximately 50% of the difference between the actual underwriting of standard medical care and hospice or palliative care. The patient maintains control over the optionality, but an immediate benefit opens up to them. One last grand vacation, a lasting legacy for the next generation, etc. The health insurer gets an actuarial gain and makes progress towards disincentivizing excessive consumption of health care in the final months of life. Seems like a no-brainer to the economist and me, though my sociologist wife thinks I'm completely cold-blooded.
0: The idea came up, Price tells us, when he and a few colleagues were doing what they always do at work, kicking around investment ideas.
3: Yeah, we, we kept coming back to the idea that, um, depending on the study you look at, you know, 40, 60, 80% of um, lifetime medical care is expended in the final twelve months or the end of life generally. And once you go down that road of thinking, you get to an obvious fork. It comes down to this idea of, you know, are you optimizing quality of life or are you optimizing quantity of life? And under the current structure, it looks like from my perspective, you're optimizing quantity of life as a proxy for quality of life. And how long into this conversation did you
0: realize that a lot of people, when they first hear an idea like this, are
3: just going to immediately hate it? Oh, pretty much immediately. Uh, the, the, I mean, it touches on a lot of taboos, right? I mean, you're, you're touching on death. You're touching on money. You're touching on health care, which clearly a third rail. Mm.
0: All right, Leavitt, how do you like that idea, the end-of-life surrendering end-of-life care for a cash rebate idea from the insurance company?
1: I love that idea. I have so long railed against the kind of spending that we do at the end-of-life. and. One thing that's hard about end-of-life is someone's got to decide if it's really end-of-life, right? So it's, it's really easy after someone dies to say, oh, that was the last month of their life. But, but before the person dies, it's not so easy to tell. And so if you, if you leave a decision about end-of-life care up to the government, then the problem is people say, oh, no, that's death panels. That's, you know, I always, that person's not going to die. We could still save them. But if the, if the patient himself or herself says, look, this is the end of my life, I don't want this expensive care, I'd rather have the money go to my my kids or to charity, then I think that's a a really brilliant way to get around the natural impulse to fight our concern about not giving people the kind of care they deserve. If it's so brilliant, why haven't we seen it? Well, for starters, uh, my hunch is it's probably not legal and, and somehow you get into trouble for doing it because... Uh, there's a lot of things we don't let people do. Like we don't really let people commit suicide and we don't let others in most states do assisted suicide. So there is this amazing unwillingness for the living to let people who want to die, die. So I think that's part of the, the repulsive nature of this program that many people would would hear about it and um, and say, ooh, I don't like the feeling of that. My name is Ryan, and I'm from South Carolina. Probably, if this was enacted, it would be a firestorm of negativity from people who weren't faced with that decision, decrying it as putting a price on human life.
5: There are both legal hurdles, and it would be a public relations nightmare. That's
0: Thomas Smith. He's an oncologist and a prominent cancer researcher. He runs the palliative medicine program at Johns Hopkins Sidney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center.
5: I don't think Cigna, Aetna, Trigon really want to deal with that. You'd have to figure out what you would do with the money you would pay the patient. How does it get taxed state by state? How does it get taxed by the feds? And it's a public relations nightmare because it looks like the insurance companies are trying to keep people out of the hospital, keep them from getting their chemotherapy, which might help them, keep them from getting their left ventricular assist device or artificial heart just to save money. It really is an, uh, a nightmare.
2: It's a hard to sell because healthcare isn't just economics, it's ethics, it's partly religious. And that is... Uwe Reinhardt. I teach economics at Princeton University.
0: Reinhardt is among the most prominent healthcare economists in the world. He's thought long and hard about the many ways in which healthcare, which has been creeping toward 20% of GDP in the U.S., is a unique animal.
2: It is absurd that people seem to think the market works in healthcare. And as an economist, I say, how could any market work when the, sh- the buyers don't know prices and quality ahead of time? You know, you go into a hospital, you don't have a clue what you'll owe when you come out. They don't have a clue. They wheel in a machine, what's this, echogram. Well, how much does it cost? The nurse says, how would I know? <laughs> Imagine that. They go to a counter and they say, hey, it's a nice shirt. How much is it? And the, the sales clerk says, how would I know? <laughs> but this is how we buy health That's how we buy healthcare care in large part
0: because consumers often don't pay the costs directly. They're paid for by an insurer, a private firm, or in the case of Medicaid, Medicare, a government plan, Once you bundle that lack of transparency with the end of a person's life, well, plainly, we're not just talking economics here, but it's a good place to start.
4: First of all, uh, there is a fair amount of money in end of life care.
0: That's Ezekiel Emanuel, not Rahm Emanuel, mayor of Chicago, or Ari Emanuel, co-CEO of William Morris Endeavor. Those are his brothers. This is Zeke.
4: I'm vice provost of Global Initiatives and chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Emmanuel is also a physician who, you may recall, helped the White House formulate the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare.
4: In the Medicare system, about uh, 25, 27 percent of the Medicare budget actually goes to patients who die in the last within the year. Uh, So it's big in Medicare and that's because people who tend to die tend to be over 65 and on Medicare. But spending a lot doesn't mean you can save a lot. And I think that's where we often get confused. Um, I think rather than focus on the dollars and cents, we should really focus on patient uh, and families and try to make this uh, traumatic event as smooth and comforting as possible and we haven't gotten it right. And the healthcare system, you know, instead of talking to a patient and getting it right, we sort of pound on their chest and try to resuscitate them, even when that may not be what they want. And, and I think trying to get what patients want ought to be our primary focus.
5: When's the last time you heard about a doctor dying in the ICU with advanced cancer or advanced heart disease or advanced congestive heart failure, or emphysema? That's Tom
0: Smith, again, from Johns Hopkins. It
5: just doesn't happen because doctors really bargain for how much good is this going to do me?
4: Is it really worth it? If you look at the data on doctors, most doctors don't want a lot of these interventions for themselves. So there is actually a a sort of paradox here that we do this for patients. But when you ask us, how do we want to be treated? It turns out, (laughs) no, that's not really for me. Leave me alone.
0: How old are you, Dr. Emanuel? Fifty-eight. Fifty-eight. Now, you in in The Atlantic, you wrote not long ago um, that you only want to live t- until the age of 75, and you spell out in—
4: Well, that's not exactly what I said.
0: We should note that The Atlantic article was headlined, Why I Hope to Die at 75. We should also note that writers often don't get to write their own headlines. In any case, in the article, Emmanuel spells out all the things he wouldn't want done to him. No cancer treatment— no cardiac stress tests, certainly no pacemaker or implantable defibrillator.
4: And I, I was like, you know, if I get to 75 and everything's still firing, uh, that that's great. But I'm not trying to live forever. Uh, it's about quality of life. And then, you know, it's uh, I don't want all these interventions that are really done for the reason of prolonging my life. So the reason I don't want the defibrillator, I would take cancer chemotherapy, is they're for prolonging my life. And I will say a number of people have said to me, including my father, I might say, he says, well, you know, you'll change your mind. And my father, unlike most people, recognizes that I can be stubborn about these things. And he says, I think the one thing which is going to change your mind is having grandchildren. And that, that's an experience I have not had. And maybe, maybe he'll be right. He's a very, a very smart guy. How um, old is your dad? He's 88. <laughs> And he's, and so, he's, he's, so he must he's, have
0: taken this as a little bit of a, of a hey, uh, you know, hey, hey, Pops, you know, those last 13 years, um, you didn't really <laughs> you didn't really so, need him. I mean,
4: no, it's not that he didn't need him. So we, we've had a lot number of long discussions about this. And he he reminds me we don't agree, but we don't agree on lots of things.
0: Uwe Reinhardt, the Princeton economist, also has a story about his father. Reinhardt is from Germany. That's where his father was diagnosed with
2: pancreatic cancer. So I actually called that German physician and I said, so what are you gonna do about it? And he said, nothing. And I said, you kidding me? He said, no, no, no. We make him as comfortable as we can, but he will pass away in a couple of weeks. So I called my Harvard friend uh, and told him, shouldn't I fly my dad over here and you guys can do something? And he said, oh, yeah, we could do something. We could probably buy him another three, four months, and he'd be in an ICU full of tubes and a lot of pain. He said, I could do that, but do you want me to do that? And and then he said, you know, this gruff German physician uh, actually did you a great favor by simply con- communicating to you, don't even tell me what to do. I'm the doc. And I'm telling you, for the patient, it is not a quality life uh, worth doing that for. And and here was this American physician telling me he's a very good doctor (laughs) because he didn't put that burden on your shoulder. He took it on his shoulder. So this is really the core of Tim Price's idea, the
0: glorious sunset proposal. Just because life can be medically extended, it doesn't mean that, A, it necessarily should be, or B, that the quality of life during that extension is in any way desirable. And yet, if you've essentially already bought and paid for all that end of life treatment through your insurance plan, aren't you entitled to something?
5: Hello, my name is David Schlesinger. I'm 38 years old and I live in Oregon, Wisconsin. I would take the cash rebate from the insurance company and I would seek treatment For my condition, in a country that had significantly lower medical costs than the United States, possibly India or parts of Europe.
0: Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, would the glorious sunset plan be just another form of healthcare rationing?
2: A very rich guy who runs a hedge fund wouldn't even consider that deal. Because what you're talking about, maybe 500,000 bucks, it's just behind the decimal for what these guys are worth.
0: And... Things are changing subtly, but they are changing in how our healthcare system looks at
4: death. You know, as I like to say, uh, talking about the end of life is the hardest thing a doctor does.
0: And one more thing. On Monday, August 31st, I am launching a new podcast with my friend James Altucher, a little side project we call Question of the Day. James and I sit down And we ask each other questions like, what's the most useful advice you can give someone in 10 minutes? What's the best way to start a conversation with a stranger? And why do so many people hate the sound of their own voice? The first five episodes will go up on August 31st. After that, we'll put out three episodes every week. That's question of the day on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Canva. Supercharge your work with AI powered Magic Write in Canva Docs. You can just describe what you want to say in a few words, and Magic Write will generate a draft in seconds. You can use it for sales proposals, marketing plans, job descriptions, meeting agendas you name it. Tweak your draft, and you're done. It is a serious time saver and the perfect way to beat the blank page. Generate your draft with Canva Docs at canva.com. Designed for work. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by IKEA. Can you believe how expensive life is these days? Well, with IKEA, you can furnish your space beautifully and affordably. When you shop at IKEA, every dollar gives more. More quality, more sustainability, more inspiration. When these things come together, you can make the most of every day. Plus, Filling your bag can now be more affordable than ever because IKEA has hundreds of new lower prices on some of their most popular items. And don't worry, IKEA cuts costs without compromising quality. IKEA is making it more affordable than ever to furnish your entire home with home solutions you will love. Shop hundreds of new lower prices today at IKEA-USA.com. That's IKEA-USA.com. Free Economics Radio is sponsored by Southern Company. As a national leader in carbon-free nuclear energy, Southern Company has a vision of a resilient energy future and every day they're putting it in motion. That means balancing the responsibility and reliability of their existing infrastructure while also investing in carbon-free nuclear energy along with wind and solar power as an essential component of preserving our environment. With energy demand on the rise, their balanced approach to a net-zero future centers around creating jobs helping communities thrive and meeting demand for carbon-free energy in a way that's affordable, reliable, and safe for all. Because a stronger and more equitable tomorrow is only possible through investments in our communities today. Learn more at southerncompany.com.
5: From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner.
0: The proposal on the table today, we are calling it the Glorious Sunset Plan, would allow a terminally ill patient to forego standard end-of-life care in exchange for a cash rebate from his or her insurance provider. A lot of people who listen to this program thought this idea might not work so well. My name's Diane, I'm 34 um, and I'm in Chicago. Uh, I, I don't know how you're gonna get the insurance companies to agree to it and, and how you smooth out the, the fine lines of what happens if um, you know a particular patient changes their mind or if they get uh, admitted to the hospital while they're found unconscious or something like that. Hi Freakonomics, my name is Israel De Bruin and I'm from Milwaukee. And right away when I heard your question, the first thing that I thought about was that there would be some people out there who didn't really feel like they had much of a choice in the matter and would feel obligated to make the choice to take the cash rebate uh, because of their financial circumstances or their family's financial circumstances.
2: You know, I could even imagine it uh, coming because it is just another form of rationing healthcare or life years. By income class, right? That's Uwe Reinhardt, the healthcare economist. A very rich guy who runs a hedge fund wouldn't even consider that deal, because what you're talking about, the maybe five hundred thousand bucks, is just behind the decimal for what these guys are worth. While if uh, someone were lower middle class, they would have a very tortured debate around the dinner table: Should we do this?
0: Let's pretend for a minute that you are not an economics professor, but that you are, let's say, the CEO of a uh, private healthcare insurance provider. Yeah. Would you even consider trying to craft a
2: proposal to make this kind of offer to your customers? You know, I, I wouldn't for the simple reason what's in it for you. As an insurer, you are just passing through the hospital and doctor bills and you, you get a little margin on them. It's actually usually 3 to 5%. So your incentive is actually, in many ways, to increase health spending. <laughs> right? So because then you get your 3% on a higher throughput, which is why these guys traditionally have never regulated or controlled costs at all.
0: So there's a lot going against our glorious sunset plan, isn't there? The economics, the healthcare rationing argument. But I'd bet that even more people would be turned off by its resemblance. Its sort of resemblance at least to the infamous death panel debate.
4: Ezekiel Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel believes that we should calculate the value of a human life and the amount we should spend to keep that life alive. And he is said to be the architect of Obamacare. He's a respected doctor, but he's been under a lot of fire since this law was born. Uh, This is Ezekiel Emanuel. You were
0: uh, very involved in the formulation of the Affordable Care Act. One of the most controversial issues, whether warranted or not, Uh, was the the so-called death panel uh, formulation of the way that end-of-life care would be kind of accounted for and and dealt with um, and and other end-of-life care uh, issues in the Medicare system.
4: Let me clarify that. uh, Please do. um, There was never, ever, ever in any draft of the Affordable Care Act, anything about end-of-life care. It never made it into the draft. What ended up happening is that there were some ideas floated around, uh, and discussions had, and that uh, people said, "Well, they're going to introduce death panels um, into the bill." Uh, the discussions, and that was,
0: including on the other side of the aisle, from what I recall, yes,
4: yes, oh, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the great irony of the whole. Thing is, that Newt Gingrich had been a long advocate of advanced directives and actually having doctors talk to patients about advanced directives. Johnny Isaacson, a senator from Georgia during that time, similarly had introduced a piece of legislation exactly like what was being discussed in terms of encouraging doctors to have conversations, paying doctors. Sarah Palin, when she was governor of Alaska, Uh, had a whole month devoted to getting Alaskans to fill out advance directives. So the Republican Party had always endorsed this until it became convenient not to endorse it and to vilify it.
0: That was then. Now, well, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has just proposed a regulation that would actually pay doctors to do nothing more than have a conversation with patients about their impending death.
4: You know, talking about the end of life is the hardest thing a doctor does, and it's emotionally charged, it's physically draining, uh, it takes time, and uh, we need to recognize that uh, increasingly that these kind of conversations, they require a lot of skill, as much skill as maybe doing a colonoscopy or doing a surgical procedure. It's not physical manual skill, it's not about dexterity, but it is about uh, uh, something probably just as important, if not more important, it's about emotional uh, understanding of patients, uh, and it ought to be compensated the way we compensate for other skills and talents.
5: There's a potential that Medicare will pay doctors like me a fee for spending a really difficult hour talking with patients about end-of-life care. That's the oncologist Tom Smith. None of that is trying to get people not to be coded, not to be in the hospital, but just to discern their wishes. Because we can't honor people's wishes unless we know what they are about resuscitation, being on a ventilator, being on dialysis. So that's a start.
0: Smith acknowledges the potential conflict of interest in how some doctors have historically treated dying patients.
5: We've worried a lot that the incentives are misaligned for the use of chemotherapy in the last month of life because up until recently, oncologists got paid a lot more to give chemotherapy than they did to spend time talking with patients. But when Ronan Kelly and I actually looked at the patterns of chemotherapy use around the world, they were exactly the same. Somewhere between 20 and 30% of all patients in Spain, Portugal, Japan, Italy, and the U.S. get chemotherapy in the last month of life. And it bore absolutely no relationship to the fact that the oncologist did or did not make money on it. I can't speak to hospitals, but oncologists like me don't give chemotherapy to make money. So, as a doctor who's had to tell
0: too many people that their time has come and that, yes, he can give them some expensive and not very effective and often very punishing drugs... Tom Smith understands where Tim Price, our listener, is coming from with his proposal to let people opt out and split the unspent dollars with the insurance company.
5: It sounds good on paper. I I agree with him that it sounds like it should work. Smith, in fact, once toyed with a similar idea for treating terminal
0: lung cancer patients. We
5: actually tried to set up an experiment like that back in the mid-1990s when, much like now, costs of health care, particularly cancer care, were escalating through the roof. There were two primary options. One was to stay in your regular fee-for-service insurance. And the second was to get a capitated indemnity payment.
0: Capitation means the healthcare provider receives a fixed fee for treating each patient. At the time of Smith's experiment, it was $18,000.
5: Because that's what we calculated the average lung cancer patient would spend on chemo and radiation in the last 12 months of life. It's, you know, triple that now. Um, So we set up the trial. The patients who went on the indemnity arm, they'd get the $18,000. They got the best supportive care or hospice care that could be provided and they would spend the $18,000 on chemo or radiation if they wanted to, or they could keep it and use it for a grandkids' education, or buy a boat, go on vacation. Smith was enthusiastic about the idea, but... Uh, It didn't work for a couple of reasons. The first reason... Our patients were actually interested, but their doctor providers weren't. It's pretty hard to look at those two very different choices and decide what to do. It's very difficult trying to decide, first of all, when somebody's going to die. We are actually pretty good at making guesses for populations, but for each individual person, it can be really hard to tell when they are in a downward spiral and going to die. There was a second reason. It's really hard for consumers, also known as People with an illness and their families to figure out what's the best treatment for them. We thought it would force doctors and patients to really bargain on either the prices or to bargain on how effective is this? What's its chance of really shrinking my cancer? What's its chance of making me live longer? How much longer will I live? What will my quality of life be? Those are all really good questions and we think those should be asked by anybody contemplating non-curative therapy anyway. These are really tough conversations to have and when you add in the cost, it gets even tougher.
0: Tom Smith would propose something completely different.
5: I would propose that doctors be very honest with their patients about what's gonna happen to them. And we're actually working on a temporary tattoo that goes on the doctor's inner left forearm. And the first question you look at is, how do you like to get medical information? And number two is, what's your understanding of your situation? Number three is, what's important to you? Number four is, what are you hoping for? And number five is, have you thought about a time when you might be sicker, when you might need an advanced directive or living well? If you do that, if you have that conversation, it really changes how people pursue end-of-life care. And it gets regular people and their families actually behaving the way that doctors do. Because doctors really bargain for, how much good is this going to do me? What's, is it really worth it?
0: In Smith's experience, the failure to talk about death even with a patient who's plainly dying, is a big problem. He'd like to see more widespread palliative care that is easing the symptoms of serious illness, either parallel to or instead of treating the illness itself.
5: It turns out if you get palliative care involved early, like at the start of a diagnosis of advanced cancer, at the start of bad heart failure, at the start of when somebody needs a heart transplant, The whole scenario changes. People have better pain and symptom management. Their families are markedly less distressed. They end up living longer. That's right, living longer, not shorter. And a good side effect is that most end-of-life hospitalizations are avoided. People really don't come to the hospital because they want to. They come to the hospital because it's 3 o'clock on a Thursday night, and they're loved one is short of breath or having pain and they don't know what to do. How much better it would be if you could have had a palliative care team available to them and a hospice nurse come out and see them on Tuesday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, adjust their pain medicines, adjust their shortness of breath medicines so they didn't need to come to the hospital. And that's one way that you can actually reduce health care costs substantially in the last month or two of life while actually improving care. And so, for a lot of reasons,
0: Tom Smith cannot sign off on Tim Price's proposal.
1: Isn't it time for you to think about a glorious sunset? Enroll
0: today. Because it's not just about medicine or economics
5: or ethics
0: or religion, even politics.
5: It's about all of them and more I think these are really, really tough decisions, and I think trying to do what Mr. Price says would be very difficult. I think his sociologist's wife has it right. It's too hard to choose, and it's much better if we define a set number of treatments for each disease, have external bodies rather than an individual doctor and, and patient decide what's good quality of care, start monitoring ourselves, start providing the best care that we can based on actual measurements rather than based on what we think, and hold ourselves accountable. It's going to get more and more difficult with the amazing increase in cost, cost of drugs. I mean, some of the new drugs are two and three times what they've ever been before, and that would, make, that would exhaust most medical savings accounts very quickly. That's where it's time for us as a society to sit down and figure out how much we should be spending on cancer at the end of life versus curative cancer therapy, heart disease therapies, and for my pediatrician wife, um, making sure that every kid gets a good head start, making sure that every kid gets their vaccinations, making sure that um, we give people a decent chance to succeed in this life. Tim Price,
0: for his part, Still thinks the idea has merit. So I'm going to ask you to envision a horrible scenario that involves you and your death. You can handle it or no? I can handle it. All right. So you're in your late 30s. You said you have two young kids, six and two, correct? Yep. All right. So let's say, and I hate to even say this in a way because it feels like it's tempting fate, but I don't really believe in that. So I'm going to go ahead and say, let's say, God forbid, everybody forbid, whatever you believe in, forbid— that you Tim Price uh, are diagnosed with something like lung cancer okay not mm-hmm. uh, tomorrow and you're told that you have uh, probably six months to live and you're told that with the available treatments you might have nine months to live let's just say those are the numbers uh, and you're not paying for those um, for those treatments those are those are covered theoretically by your insurance but I say to you Tim you know um, if you decide to forego that standard treatment the insurance provider will essentially split the
3: cost with you well I think you certainly have to take a look at what the difference in your life would be with treatment without what the probability is that those additional months are going to be what I would consider to be valuable months Um, am I going to be able to be with my family be with my sons Get more out of it, or am I going to be, um, you know, am I going to be incapacitated and not able to engage and interact with my family? Versus, what would those additional dollars allow me to do today, over the next couple of weeks, over the next couple of months? I don't know if I would do it or not. But I know I would like the option of doing that of of having that conversation with my wife and thinking about um, kind of the legacy I want to leave uh, for for my family. I think that would be a long and difficult conversation. Um, you know it's you, your life is yours, but it's you know, a little bit belongs to uh, everybody you interact with.
5: Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC and Dubner Productions. Our staff includes Greg Rosalski, Caroline English, Susie Lechtenberg, Merritt Jacob, Christopher Wirth, and Kasha Mihailovich. This episode was mixed by Jake Howitt, and we had help this week from Matt Fidler. If you want more Freakonomics Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to Freakonomics.com, where you'll find lots of radio, a blog, the books, and more.
4: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
0: Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.